Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we come to the account of the birth of our Lord and Savior. If you're using the Adoration Bibles, Luke 2 can be found on page 1090. 1090 in the Adoration Bibles. You'll recall from yesterday that Zechariah had finished his song by noting that the sunrise was going to visit God's people from on high, and, and that that sunrise was a reference to the Lord Jesus Himself. And now we read of this great sunrise, the, the dawning of a new age in redemptive history. We read of these glad tidings of great joy. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the very outset of our passage this morning, we are met with the wonder of God's providence. God's providence, we know, speaks to God's eternal counsel, whereby He ordains everything that comes to pass. In God's providence, God directs human history so that His good and gracious purposes for us in the world surely come to pass. This is not only true for our own lives personally, but also for the redemption of the church more generally. When the fullness of time had come, which is to say, at just the right time, not a moment too soon and not a moment too late, 
when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we know that as we read our Bibles from Genesis 3.15 onward, God has has been at work. God has been working through the course of human history. He's been working through the lives of the patriarchs. He was working through the lives of Israel and the wilderness wandering and Canaan conquest. He was working through all the struggles of the Davidic dynasty, from exile to return and everything in between. From Genesis to Malachi, we can see God's handiwork on display as The day of fulfillment drew near, and now here in Luke 2, we see that that day has finally come. The fullness of time has finally come. The time has come for the Savior to be born, and in God's providence, we see here, is is on grand display as He orchestrates all things to take place in such a way that all those prophecies from the Old Testament now come to pass. You recall, we heard in our assurance of pardon yesterday from Micah, Uh, chapter 5, that, but to you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And in order that that prophecy might be fulfilled, what does God do? God turns the hearts of those who are in charge of the Roman Empire in such a way that a decree goes out in all the land that everyone must return to his ancestral hometown to register for taxes. It was, of course, business as usual for the Roman Empire, the Romans doing what they always did, taxing their people. But little did the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus know, little did Quirinius know that they were simply instruments in the providential hand of the Lord. Little did they know that they were actually, in this decree, carrying out the eternal purposes of the King of Kings. Little did they know that in this decree to bolster Rome's financial resources, they were actually laying the foundation for a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were laying the foundation for the very kingdom that would come to topple over every other earthly kingdom known to man. As Phil Riken writes, although Caesar would never know it, his decree had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph with his fiancée Mary. This one little family, seemingly swept up in the tide of earthly power, gave birth to a son who would rule the world. We know that just nine months before the decree had gone out, the angel Gabriel had, had also revealed himself to Mary. And he had said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning Savior. For he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel had assured her, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
And so already here in Caesar's decree, the words of Gabriel are being fulfilled. The words of Mary's song are being fulfilled. In the previous chapter, Mary sang a song to God. In that song, she said, God has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud thoughts of their hearts. And He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And He has exalted those of a humble estate. And that's where our passage begins with those of a humble estate. Our passage begins with, with the humble entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. We read that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary and the child. And here in verse 4, you'll notice that David is mentioned two times. Luke tells us that Joseph was from the town of David, that Joseph was from the lineage of David. It's something that, that the angel Gabriel had stressed earlier also to Mary. It's something that Zechariah had stressed yesterday, that these things are taking place in connection with the lineage of King David. And the grand purpose of these statements, we know as Luke's readers, is to establish this child's credentials in order to fulfill the promise of salvation, Jesus had to be a direct descendant of King David. And so, Jesus enters our world as David's greater son. Here's the man, the true man after God's own heart. Here's the true king whose throne shall be established forever. Here's the prince of peace who comes to bring lasting pardon peace. This is what God's people have have been waiting for ever since the days of Genesis 3.15 for this prince of peace, this king who would come to crush Satan's head. And yet Luke writes here with a simplicity that stands in stark contrast to, to the enormity of what's taking place here. He writes it so matter-of-factly, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. Here's the birth of the long-expected Jesus, born a child and yet a king, born to set God's people free. But it's described in such an ordinary way. As is the case with all healthy pregnancies, the time came to give birth, and so Jesus was born. Just like every other baby, Jesus was actually born. Through the birth canal, He came into the world weak and fragile. He was wrapped up in swaddling cloths, and He was laid in a manger because there was no room for Him in the end. And to understand what a great indignity this was, we simply have to remember who Jesus was and is. Here was the Creator of the universe, he was the, the firstborn over all creation, as Paul says in Colossians. He was the, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He was the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, King of kings, Lord of lords, supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He was the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God. He was the radiance of God's glory. He was the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He was God of God, light of light, very God of very God. But in gracious condescension, in unimaginable humility, 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this congregation is the wonder of the incarnation, the transcendent Lord of glory and gracious condescension humbled Himself in this way. Not only was He born as all babies are born, but He was born in a lowly cattle stall. When the Son of God, the Creator of the universe came, He couldn't even get a room. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger He did surrender, sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. And we know that this humility with which the Lord Jesus begins His life is going to be characteristic throughout the rest of His life. We know that the sufferings that, that are commencing here at His incarnation are going to come to their culmination at His crucifixion. That the same body that was once wrapped in swaddling cloths at His birth is going to be wrapped in a burial shroud at His death. And so writes one pastor, the manger points to the cross and to the grave, showing how it is that we are saved, that we are saved by the humility, by the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was to be humbled in order that we might be exalted. We notice in the second place this morning that this humble entrance is yet accompanied by a heavenly entourage. In verse 8, we read that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. But then what happened? An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And again, as is customary, they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news, glad tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ's humble entrance is accompanied by a heavenly entourage. Not only does Gabriel appear before them, but we read also that suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Somehow the birth of Christ had to be celebrated, and not only did it have to be celebrated, but also had to be explained. And so God sends his, his mighty angels to proclaim what's now occurred in this little town of Bethlehem. The hosts appear to these shepherds not with a message of judgment, but with a message of peace. Quote J.C. Ryle, the spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be crushed. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake he could also justify the ungodly. If this was not good tidings, then there were never tidings that deserved the name. But what's so surprising here in this glorious sight of the heavenly host is that they make themselves known not to kings or to queens. They don't come to reveal themselves to the, to the chief priests in Israel, to the spiritual leaders in Israel. 
but rather they appeared to the lowly shepherds who were tending their flocks at night. Boys and girls, why did the angels make themselves known to shepherds? And why, of all people, they entrust the message of salvation concerning the Lord Jesus Christ to shepherds? Shepherds, we have to recognize, were the outcasts of society. We we tend to romanticize shepherds because we read of a lot of good shepherds in the Bible. But shepherds, writes one pastor, did not enjoy a very good reputation in their day. Shepherds lived out in the field, and so most of them were not able to keep this ceremonial law. And they were often treated as those who were unclean. They were regarded often as being liars and thieves, so that it was actually the case in that, in that time that the testimony of shepherds would not even be heard in the court of law. Shepherds were despised, and perhaps with only the exception of lepers, they were the lowest class of men in society. Well, if this was so, then why on earth did God entrust the message to shepherds? Why did God send His heavenly host to reveal themselves with this message to shepherds? Well, in the first place, for the angels to announce these glad tidings... To shepherds serves to show us that the gospel is indeed for everyone. The gospel of salvation is not just for the nobler classes of society, but the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. But in the second place, the hosts of heaven appear to lowly shepherds, and they entrust the message of Christ's birth to lowly shepherds to show that that through the weakness of the messengers, the world might see that all the glory belongs to God alone. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul endeavors to show in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? In 2 Corinthians 4, what does Paul say? He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul highlights the same thing later on in 1 Corinthians 1, to show that, that this is God's way. God, in His infinite wisdom and grace, often chooses the, the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong things of the world, so that all the glory might go to Him, so that it might be clear to the whole world that salvation comes from above and, and not from below. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, says Paul, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved, this is God's way. This is the manner in which God shames the world and proves the supposed wisdom of the world to be foolishness. His heavenly hosts appear 
before lowly shepherds. He exalts those of a humble estate, and he entrusts to these lowly shepherds the message of Christ's birth. This God does is show that the gospel is for everyone and that God can use anyone. This is good news for us. This is why we, like those shepherds so long ago, don't have any reason to be afraid that unto us also, that unto us also, as the angel said, was born on that day in the city of David a Savior who was Christ the Lord. And so, God speaks to us this morning in His Word. He bids us to hear the voice of those angels to say that if we're still afraid this morning, if any of us are afraid to, to stand before God, then He bids us to take the words of the angel to heart. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God and sinners have been reconciled in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says also to us, my peace is upon you, for in Christ I am well pleased with you. To quote Ryle once more, now is come to earth the peace of God which passes all understanding, the perfect peace between a holy God and a sinful man, which Christ was to purchase with His own blood. No longer do we need to be afraid to come and stand before a God. No longer do we need to be anxious for the future. No longer do we need to worry about whether God will really provide for us and for all our personal needs because He has already provided for our greatest need in the Lord Jesus. Well, to confirm their words, God's angel gives the shepherds a sign. He says in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. No, the shepherds won't find the Savior clothed in royal splendor as they might have expected, but they'll find Him lying in a lowly manger. They'll be confronted instead with the humiliation of the incarnation. Instead of finding Christ robed in royal splendor, they'll come face to face with the gracious condescension of the Lord of glory, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. Well, after they heard the angelic song, what did these shepherds do? The message of the angels we discover was a message that could not be ignored. It was a message that needed to be acted upon immediately. And so we read in verse 15 that when the angels went away, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Without a moment's hesitation, these shepherds went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And then what does Luke tell us in verse 17? And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. These humble shepherds are made into happy evangelists upon beholding the Savior of the world. The good news that had been declared to them, we see, was simply too good for them to keep for themselves. And so, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And this congregation, we know, is the, 
is the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church's calling is to make known to the world what the Lord has made known to us. The church's calling is to provide a sound defense for the hope that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As is encapsulated in the church's missionary hymn from Psalm 67, God has blessed us with the knowledge of salvation in Christ that we might be a blessing to others. O oh God, to us show mercy and bless us in your grace. Cause now to shine upon us the brightness of your face. And why? So that your way most holy on earth may soon be known. And unto every people your saving grace be known. The church's calling is to make known to the world what the Lord has made known to us. We have the message that the world needs. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. In verses 18 to 20, we see that those who heard the news did not all respond in the same way. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They were all surprised for sure, but we know that not everyone took the shepherd's message to heart. But Mary's response, we see, went much deeper. For Mary, we read, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. For Mary, the shepherd's testimony served to further confirm the promises that God had made to her nine months before. And she treasured these things in her heart. In verse 20, Lou tells, that the, that tells us that the shepherds likewise returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told them. No doubt the lives of these shepherds was never the same. They had been granted the knowledge of salvation, and so they spent the rest of their lives, no doubt, rejoicing in this Redeemer and King. After all the years of waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of promise to come, God finally had done what He said He would do. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to redeem us from the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In His grace and mercy, God has given to us also the ears to hear the glad tidings of of great joy proclaimed by the angels so long ago that we too might rejoice and be glad in this Redeemer just as the shepherds were so long ago. And so we sing, joy to the world. We rejoice this morning. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And we say to the world, let earth receive her King. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground for Christ the Redeemer has come to remove the curse as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do give you thanks and praise for the glad tidings of great joy that unto us was born in the city of David a Savior who was Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have revealed these things to the lowly, that you have revealed the good news of the gospel even to us. And Father, we pray that having come to know these great things of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would make these things known to the world in which we live. 
And Father, we pray that you would teach us to rejoice in our Redeemer all the days of our lives, to teach us, Lord, to treasure and to ponder the good news of salvation in our hearts, that we may love Him more and more all our days. This we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.